Good afternoon. My name's Steve Wraith, and uh, I thought I would do uh, a very special uh, podcast for the true crime fans out there, and that is Steve Wraith's stories about the Cray twins. Uh, so this is called The Crays and Me. Uh, it's part one. Not sure how many of these will do, but uh, I'm going to give you a, a, a brief history of the Cray twins today. And then what we'll do is uh, go through the uh, the ups and downs of their lives. And then eventually we will end up uh, starting my relationship with the Crays, how I got to know them, how I worked for them. And uh you know, the ups and downs of my 10-year relationship with one of the most notorious families in the UK. Um, but I suppose the best thing to do is to, to begin at the beginning. And that is with the Cray twins and uh, where they were born. They were born, obviously, in the uh, in the east end of, of London and uh, born today of all days. They would have been 87 today. They were born on the 24, uh, 24th of October. Uh, 1933 and they were born in Steen Street and that was as I say Hoxton. Reg was born first uh, just after 8pm. Ronnie Cray was then born 10 minutes later. Uh, they were born to parents Charlie Cray and also to mother Violet Cray and essentially the the Cray twins were were revered they were um, doted on by by the mother. Um, she already had a son. They already had a son, uh, Charlie Cray, who was born uh, six years earlier. And uh, they were the talk of of the East End of London. And they were going to make history one way or another. Mentally, Ron and Reg were were inseparable. They had a bond where if one was happy, the other would feel it and suffering corresponded too. They even shared the same name. So if one was around, um, it was assumed that the other wouldn't be too far away. So they took on the name twins, becoming like a single entity. They share everything, even illness. Um, when they were younger, they caught diphtheria. Uh, Ronnie really suffered badly with diphtheria um and almost died and that was one of the first times in the life that the twins were actually separated from each other in in hospital there's an infamous scene in uh in the film which has the uh has the twins slightly older um that's in the 1990s film which was uh done by ray burdis and, and peter medak and it shows Violet Cray and, and Aunt Rose and uh, a couple of other aunties going down and basically dragging dragging the kids out of hospital and saying that they'll look after them at home. Well, that wasn't strictly true. Um, you know, it was, you know, they, they were a lot younger. Um, but yeah, they both caught diphtheria and they also caught measles at uh, early stages in their lives. And of course, this was in pre-vaccine times and children were in the highest risk group. And this meant... Of course, as I said earlier, they had to be separated for the first time. They actually ended up in dis uh, different hospitals. Reg did recover quickly. Ron, as I mentioned, almost died of the infection. And he was kept in hospital long after Reg was discharged. Uh, Violet did, though, bring him home against the wishes of the doctors, uh, saying that he needed only her and Reg to, to get him back on track. Um, Violet always wanted to move to uh, the East End um, of London, the, the Bethnal Green part of London. 
So from from her perspective, you know that was key. She wanted to be, you know, back with uh, back with her family. And um, the twins obviously grew older. Um, lovely photo of them there. Uh, very identical in those days. You can you can see. Um, and you know, very posed photograph that one as well. Matching outfits, uh, as you will expect. But yeah, Violet wanted to move to um, you know to be closer to family. Uh, and Bethnal Green was the area that she wanted to move to. So the Cray family actually moved to Valence Road in Bethnal Green just before the outbreak of World War II. They lived at number 178 Valence Road. Uh, that's no longer there now, but if you go down to the East End and uh, you have a walk around, you can find roughly um, where the house was uh, because it was right next to Liverpool uh, Liverpool Street line. So essentially the, the railway line um you know that leads into liverpool street used to run uh you know basically at the back of their house and they were often woken up by the noise of trains etc you know that they, they often mentioned that um but yeah it used to run over the top of the backyard and um, violet as i say wanted to be close at their family our parents in particular and um her and charlie married at 17 so you know it was quite young but that was quite normal for that time and she was basically outcast by her family um they didn't really want her to marry uh you know old man charlie uh, the birth of young charlie obviously eased the tension a bit and it put them all back on speaking terms hence the reason that she wanted to move back over there um the birth of the twins uh, you would imagine was probably the clincher because you know it was the talk of you know talk of the family and um something to be very proud of when you had two you know beautiful young young boys and, and both twins um speaking about valens road um it was quite typical of the time it was overcrowded it was a, a, you know a slum slummish area the houses had no bathrooms the toilets were always outside in the backyard and there were gambling dens and seedy pubs billiard halls brothels they're all dotted all over that particular area and of course uh, you know from you know from you know the crazy perspective the you know weren't particularly you know rich a rich family um you know they were they were like any normal family uh, struggling to make ends meet um but yeah that area was was known for drinking um and you know and for the love of boxing it was it was renowned for poor housing conditions and unemployment uh after the twins had, had fully recovered from the illness uh, ron had definitely been affected by it um he, he, you know, he, there's reports and, and, and stories in some of the books that say that he was slower. Uh, he was more socially reserved than Reg was. And he found it harder to get on with people. So there's no doubt that this, you know, this diphtheria in particular had really caused, you know, caused some some issues with, you know, with, with Ron's mental state. Um, Reg, completely different, had recovered and, and he was fine um ron would tend to spend a lot of time alone when he wasn't with reg with with a pet alsatian in the house and um you know uh, as they were in the second world war and you know bombing was quite common uh he would roam around the bomb sites of bethnal green and you've got to say that the, the illness probably played an important part in their early years because from violet's point of view she began to notice the differences between them for the first time uh, in the family home, for example, Ron would compete for his mother's attention. Uh, he felt disadvantaged, I suppose, in comparison to Reg. He was physically bigger, but he was also clumsier. 
and um, you know they would often fight each other. Ron and Reg would, you know, would would like all siblings do, you know, want something the other one wanted, and that would cause a cause a row. But these rows were were getting more frequent, and um, it did almost seem as if Ron was was competing uh, against Reg, which which you know which which is no surprise, but um, it just felt that the, the illness had, had, had certainly you know played its part. Um, as well as the squabbling and the fighting, though, they, they, they did stick together. And, um, you know, as, as they grew older, um, you know, they, you know, essentially became, you know, two, two average schoolboys, you would say, you know. And, uh, you know, they, they, they both um, started to develop uh, a taste for, for fighting. And, and they did become known as, as the terrible twins. Uh, they were always fighting with their cousin, Billy. Um, uh, fighting against older boys, um, and when war broke out and the school was closed, uh, they were around about eight years old. So this war-torn and like derelict world provided a perfect backdrop for countless fights and vendettas with with other kids. It was a perfect setting. Uh, always after a fight, they would appear at home, cleaned up as if nothing had happened. So as far as the mother knew, nothing had. They were experts at keeping this side of their lives from like from her. And that side was the side that the father was all too familiar with because he was he was quite streetwise, uh, was old Charlie, and uh, he knew what they'd be getting up to. And of course, the war and no school meant that they could fight their own wars. And, and I suppose that was their, their education. That was how they got introduced to uh, a profession of violence. Um, as, as the war progressed, and you know the you know the the bombing came quite bad around their area uh you know the family um including violet were were moved out they were shipped out and uh it was from their perspective a, a journey really they were they, they were given the opportunity to um you know to to go out into to the country they were evacuated to uh east house i think it was called in hadley in suffolk um charlie went as well and they stayed at East House with uh, the owners there, um, who was a doctor, uh, the Style family. And they were there for about a year before the move back to London. Um, Violet missed her friends, she missed her family. And, and you know, all the kids had a, a great time. Ronnie and Reggie and Charlie had a great time out there. They, they did miss their friends too. Um, when they were in Hadley, they, they did attend a school. Uh, they attended Bridge Street Boys School. And... Uh, from from their perspective they loved it as i say it was the first time in the countryside and i think ron mentioned it in an interview in broadmoor he um you know he loved the quietness of it he loved the peacefulness of it he loved the fresh air the nice scenery the nice countryside it was so different from london and um they used to go to a big hill called constitution hill and they used to go sledging there in the winter time so it was a lot of happy memories for for ron in particular there um, but yes, they did return to London and uh, they returned to the influence of uh, one particular character, um, Cannonball Lee, uh, Jimmy Cannonball Lee. Um, he was uh, a, a boxer back in the day, as, as was my Jimmy Cray. And um, he used to tell them stories. And, and there was a wonderful part in the film, which was which was pretty accurate, um, where he talked a little bit about... Um, about boxing and about you know then about someone 
garroting somebody and, you know, talking about Jack the Ripper. And, you know, he used to tell them a lot of stories. Some of them were exaggerated. Some of them were true stories. But, you know, he used to tell them a lot of tall tales and a lot of stories. And uh, they loved it. They loved they loved seeing Cannonball Lee. And um, from their perspective, it was uh, it was just an enjoyable, an enjoyable time of their lives. You know, it made it made the bombing, etc., you know, almost disappear you know from from their point of view you know they never um you know they never really thought of what was going on around them when they were listening to to their grandfather and of course he got them you know he got them to you know to start taking up boxing he would you know he would set up something in the uh in the garden he would um you know he would he would you know he'd have them sparring he would be teaching them moves and and from his perspective he was you know getting them ready for for you know for for dramas ahead um one thing that isn't particularly well known, and it, it's something which almost gets forgotten, and, and and that is that Reg might not have suffered diphtheria as bad as, as Ron did, but Reg suffered a severe trauma when he was a kid. And it was around about that time when when the war was taking place and when um uh when the when they were roaming and roaming around, you know, these you know the bomb sites etc um reg suffered a trauma with with one of his friends they were just out playing um him and his mate tommy and uh you know a few other lads and you know getting up to the kind of mischief the kids get up to at that age and um they stumbled across a an old delivery van which had been parked up as a as a guy had gone in to make a bread delivery in a in a shop and like all young lads do the door was open they started messing around with the uh started messing around with the keys and um it was basically one of the lads jumped in and instead of going forward uh the the delivery van the delivery van had been left in reverse and uh they basically reversed over a young child and uh the young child um was under the wheels at the back he was trapped between the delivery van and uh, a, a big pile of rubble um which was outside the back from from a bombing that had happened earlier um that that week and uh reg described it as uh, you know quite graphically that the kid was bent into a horrible shape and uh he he knew that you know that he knew that the kid wasn't going to survive and as all kids do when mischief uh, takes place or something happens they um they decided to, to to run away and uh the the young lad did die and it was uh at a coroner's court i think the uh, the, the cause of death was accidental um they said that the the handbrake hadn't been left on and that the uh the vehicle had simply rolled and, and hit the kid and, and that's why he'd been killed but um Reg, in, in one of his books, uh, I think it was Our Story with Fred Dynage, talks in depth about that and says that um, even even in his prison cell in the 90s, um, you know, you would have you would have nightmares about that particular incident. And that kind of trauma can affect anybody. And, um, you know, the, there was no surprise to hear that, you know, that that kind of thing, you know, still still plagued uh, Reg, you know, up until he's up until his death. Um, so yeah, that 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 is obviously going to affect anybody. The um, the family, the near family, obviously who lived around them, Aunt Rose, um, you know, Aunt May in particular, had a big effect on their life. As did their mother. The you know the father um, was was often on the run. Um, he didn't want to fight for his country, 
and uh, he would spend most of the kids' adolescent life um, avoiding the police. He did get caught on on more than one occasion and and locked up and and uh, you know had to serve a little bit of time. Um, but yeah, he, he was your typical East End wheeler dealer, and you know the twins obviously uh, you know didn't see a great deal of him in those early years. As the, the war came to an end, however, uh, and you know the kids were back in the East End. The careers were back in the East End. They did go to school, as I as I mentioned a little bit earlier, and um, they you know they went to a couple of schools, but the one that probably stands out is Daniel Street School. And uh, again, you know they learned that you know they learned the profession of violence because. They, you know, because they, they were twins, they were they, they were often, you know, getting into trouble. One would use the other one and blame the other one. It was always difficult to work out who, who'd done what. Um, Reg recalled a particular incident where he had a fight in the in the school playground and he got a black eye. And uh, you know, from that moment on, he, he realised that um, you know he was going to have to start learning how to defend himself and. Uh, he, he essentially got, um, you know, he, he started getting, you know, boxing lessons. And uh, that's where this photo, you know, shows, the, you know, the young craze, um, essentially with, with a lot of the, the lads from the, the local boxing club who they, um, you know, who essentially they, you know, they used to train with and used to uh, spar with and, and, and go to tournaments with. Was there a better fighter amongst them? Um, yes. Uh, you would have to say that it was, it was Reggie Cray. Uh, Reggie Cray was was often, um, you know, described as a very stylish fighter. Um, the elder brother Charlie had helped them. Uh, Cannonball Lee had, had helped them. Um, and both the twins took up amateur boxing. And you know, Reggie made it to the finals of the London Schools Boxing Champion and uh, Championships in 1948. And he he actually won. Uh, he won, and um, he was tipped tipped for success. It has to be said. And after a, a very impressive amateur career, uh, they, you know, where where they were said to have never lost a match, um, they actually turned professional. Uh, both turned professional at the age of 19, and uh, that photo, which is a uh, you know a, a world famous photo now, um, where they're wearing those Ampro gloves, Ampro boxing shorts, etc., um, is is something which I'm quite you know quite proud of in the sense that i i actually owned the gloves so there's the gloves there uh did that for a a newspaper shoot but um i will come on to that story uh on on another podcast but yeah it's um the boxing career is 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 exciting i suppose in a lot of ways because you know the only two you know choices for career that you have um as as you know as a lad from the east end is either villainy or boxing um and the careers looked like they had gone down you know the, the right channel the right road and uh from their perspective and, and their parents perspective you know they were they were delighted to to see that uh ronnie Cray's box rec record um he had four professional fights and uh he wasn't as stylish as reg um, you know, he was a he was a knockout merchant, um, but he, he had his first fight at the Mile End Arena. He took on Bernie Long and he won by a technical knockout. That was on uh, the 31st of August 1951. He then fought at uh, Wembley Town Hall 
again against Bernie Long. And uh, that was in September of 51. And uh, again, he, he beat him by a technical knockout. Glad to say that he didn't fight Bernie Long in his third fight. He fought a guy called Bobby Edwards. And that was at the National Sporting Club uh, in Piccadilly. And again, yep, you've guessed it. Technical knockout. Uh, again, that was a month later, more or less. And these fights were coming quite frequently. And that was on the 22nd of October. He then fought a guy called George Goodsell. He won that by a clean knockout at Lime Grove Baths in Shepherd's Bush. And then his next two fights, he didn't have a great deal of success. He fought Doug Sherlock, uh, and that was at the National Sporting Club uh, Mayfair. He lost by disqualification. Now, there's not any information about that um, that I've been able to find in, in his regards, write-ups, etc. But um, he lost that by disqualification. And then he fought Bill Sliney. Uh, and this fight was quite significant because it was, uh, again, 1951. And uh, this was in the December of that year. And this was the the much publicized show where all three Cray brothers actually fought uh, on the same bill. And that really was was quite a, you know, quite a special occasion. The um, ticket uh, and boxing poster are two of the things which I have. Uh, quite prized possessions. I own that dad's actual ticket for the event. But uh, if you can see on the poster there, there's Ron Cray against Bill Sliney, Reg Cray against Bobby Manito, and then Lou Lazar against Charlie Cray. But yeah, quite a quite a special thing to have uh, all three brothers, you know, boxing on the same uh, on the same bill. Um, but yeah, with regards to to Reggie Cray. Um, that was Ronnie Cray's last fight. He lost against Bill. Uh, he lost against Bill Slaney. Um, but Reg Cray was, you know, was a contender. You know, he was. He could have been a contender, and he had seven pro fights. And uh, he again, um, you know, fought all of his fights, his pro fights, in 1951. Uh, he fought Bobby Manito at the Arena Mile End, won on points. He fought Johnny Starr. Uh, in the August of that year uh, at the arena in Mile End. He won by a knockout. Then he took on George Goodsell um, at Wembley Town Hall and uh, September of that year, technical knockout. And then his final four fights, uh, he fought Bill Sliney twice. Of course, Bill had beaten Ron on the uh, the bill at the Albert Hall. Uh, he fought Bill Sliney at the National Sporting Club in Piccadilly and then Lime Grove Bath Shepherds Bush. He won both of those on points. Then he fought Bobby Woods at the National Sporting Club Mayfair uh, in the in the November of that year, won on points. And then he fought Bobby Minito, as we've just seen on the Albert Hall, and he won that on points as well. So he won seven. He had seven pro fights. He won them all, and uh, he was tipped literally for you know for greatness. And um, unfortunately for him, uh, it, it wasn't to be. And um, why wasn't it to be? Well. Essentially, um, trouble started to, you know, to come to the doorstep. And 1950 is probably the, you know, the the first time that the Crays got into trouble. Um, certainly, one of the the first times that it, it's recorded that, that they got into trouble. And um, that was outside uh, a cafe on Bethnal Green Road. Um, a police officer had come along. He was just a young uh, a young police officer, and Basically, 
didn't like the fact that the the Crays and their, and their friends were hanging around outside this cafe. And um, Ron had his back to the police officer and he essentially shoved Ron in the back. So Ron obviously turned around, saw it was a police officer. That didn't bother him. Uh, threw a right-hander and he knocked the copper out. Now, at this point, Reg had, you know, Reg was, you know, too slow to react, hadn't seen what was going on. Um, Ron and, and Reg and the lads dart off in, in different directions, um, but it doesn't take long for the police to catch up with Ronnie Cray. And like they did in the good old days, grabbed a hold of Ronnie, bundled him into the back of, uh, you know, the old Mariah, um, give him a little clump or two, and uh, took him down to the local police station. So, Reg, what do you expect he's going to do? Go home, have a cup of tea with his mum? No, not in the slightest. So Reg essentially uh, gets to the police station and times it just right because as he gets to the police station, who should be coming out having booked uh, Ron in? But uh, the police officer who has just caused all this issue outside the cafe. So Reg walks up to him, bang, knocks him out. Reg is arrested as well. So yeah, uh, uh, and it's an amazing story, but that really shows you, I suppose, um, you know, uh, what was to come. In 1952, and again, this is something that's covered quite well in, in some of the films, uh, Ronnie and, and Reggie were drafted for national service. Uh, they were drafted into the Royal Fusiliers, um, which is a British Army Infantry Regiment, uh, but they frequently deserted. Uh, they didn't like it. They weren't enjoying their time uh, at all, uh, as you know, as being in the military. They hated uniform, um, as is just shown with you know, with you know, with the police officer outside the cafe and outside the police station. Um, they did report to the depot on on numerous occasions at the Tower of London. Um, but very rarely did the stay. And on one particular incident, as I say, which is shown in the film, uh, the corporal in charge tried to stop them. He was seriously injured by Ronnie, who punched him on the jaw. Uh, the Crays then walked back to their East End home. They were arrested the next morning by the police and then they were turned back over to the army. Uh, in the September of 1952, uh, while they were AWOL, which is absent without leave, they assaulted a police constable who tried to arrest them. Um, they were, as history shows, the last prisoners to be held at the Tower of London. Um, they were then transferred to Shepton Mallet Military Prison in Somerset uh, for a month to await a court-martial. Uh, and after they were convicted, uh, both of them were sent to Buff's Home Counties Brigade Depot Jail in Canterbury in Kent. Uh, when it became clear they were both to be dishonorably discharged from the army, uh, their behaviour really did become worse. Uh, they dominated the exercise areas outside the one-man cells, uh, they threw tantrums, they emptied the latrine bucket over a sergeant, um, they dumped a canteen full of hot tea on another guard, they handcuffed a guard at the prison bars with a pair of stolen handcuffs and they set bedding on fire. Eventually they were moved to a communal cell where they assaulted the guard with a vase and then they escaped. Um, they were quickly 
recaptured. Um, they spent their last night in military custody in Canterbury drinking cider, eating crisps and smoking cigarellos, uh, who, uh, which they'd got from one of the young National Service men who was acting as their guards. Um, and then the next day, the Crays were transferred to a civilian prison to serve sentences for the crimes that they committed while they were AWOL. So, yeah, I mean, authority, they clearly had an issue with it. And, um, you know, the, the, the short spell in the army, as has been shown in the films, uh, didn't didn't last very long. But um, it's it's a fascinating story. And I think if you watch the, the 1990 film, it probably does give you like one of the, uh, you know, one of the best, you know, the, the best you know the, the best recreations of that um you know that that particular issue when the late um michael elphick um shares a scene with them as well where he's he's on the bunk bed and he's going i know your name cray and you know he's obviously giving them the sweets and giving them giving them cigarettes and whatever so you know from from a film perspective that's probably the best one to watch um you know if if, if you want to if you want to get involved um that's going to be the end of the first podcast um for me uh i could talk you know till the cows come home about the craze but uh that gives you a, a little introduction into who they were and what made them uh the people they were and uh thanks to everybody who's tuned in sean wilson uh johnny owen and donald baines thanks very much for for tuning in i hope you've enjoyed it please give it a a share and a listen um and each show um i will uh, promote a few of the things that we do. Um, the Craze the Geordie Connection is a book that I actually wrote with Stu Wheatman uh, over 20 years ago now. Uh, that gives you an insight into my lifetime with the Craze. Um, there's a book, Freddie Foreman's Final Photo Album. Freddie, of course, was part of the Cray firm, um, and that has some fantastic photographs of Fred back in the 1960s. Uh, there is uh, a DVD uh, called the name is Cray, which is the missing documentary, which was filmed in 1969. And there's the Cray Brothers tapes, um, which is conversations between me and uh, the Crays, and some conversations with Charles Bronson as well. That's a CD, which is available. And all of those are available at www.badboysbooks.net. Uh, the link is down below in the description, and uh, you can purchase one or any of them uh, as you see fit over the next over the next couple of weeks um, if you want to continue listening but yeah this uh, will be uh, a weekly podcast and uh, always happy to take questions from from different people uh, as as we get a little bit closer to, to my time with the craze but I felt it was important that we set the set the stall out and we gave you an idea of who the craze were uh, episode two next week. We'll be looking at the craze rise up the criminal ladder. Um, but thanks very much for watching, and uh, I will see you next week. Mm -hmm.